0: Hello, and welcome to Gwinnett County Public Library's new podcast, Authors Annotated, where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. My name is Steve Thomas. I'm the branch manager at the Grayson Branch. And on today's episode, we welcome local author Martin Paget, author of A Night at the Sweet Gum Tree, Drag, Drugs, Disco, and Atlanta's Gay Revolution, who you will hear in conversation with Mark Woodard, a longtime library staff member who for a number of years was the library's adult program coordinator and author liaison and served on the library's LGBTQIA plus task force. Take it away, Mark.
1: The book is really moving and it's robust and it tells the story of a time and a place and it's been very well reviewed. Uh, One great review from the New York Times is uh, when stories such as these get told, it is cause for celebration. And maybe the most coveted review of all is one from the local legendary Emmy-winning actor, Leslie Jordan. And um, Leslie thinks she nailed it, as I'm sure you know. Uh, his review is Bravo, Martin. You have captured it all beautifully. Leslie uh, was around during this era. And so he, he knows where the bodies were buried, I think. <laughs> and our author is Martin Pageant. So let's talk about him. Uh, has written for The Bitter Southerner, Oxford American, Creative Loafing, Washington Post. He earned his MFA in narrative nonfiction writing from the UGA, Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. He was a 2019 Lambda Literary Fellow, and he was also named as one of their emerging writers of 2019. And he's pursuing a PhD in history at Georgia State University. And Martin lives in Atlanta with his husband, and I could not be more proud and delighted and on behalf of the Gwinnett County Public Library to welcome the author of A Night at the Sweet Gum Head, um, Martin Patchett. Hi, Martin.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, I also lived in Gwinnett County for a while, too. And uh, on my several visits out to Athens for MFA studies, uh, made a couple favorite stops along the way. And uh, yeah, I have fun memories.
1: I, as far as I know, there's still not a gay bar in Gwinnett. I'm not sure. I don't live in Gwinnett, but I mm-hmm. I don't know if there is. I'd be curious to find out. No,
2: I don't know either. Uh, it, but in general, you know, there are fewer gay bars than there. there used to be, so it's harder to imagine um, any of them having survived COVID too. I, I really am eager to see many of the places uh, that didn't make it through the first time we get rechristened
1: that's true i do think there are several organizations in Gwinnett that support the community so there is that yep. so the sweet gumhead it was a bar that opened in 1971 mm-hmm. uh, on Cheshire bridge it was opened by frank powell who uh who named it after the town he was born in the sweet sweet gumhead florida Yep. And, um you know, he was kind of the king of uh, late-night Atlanta at the time. He had re- opened several clubs, mm-hmm. uh, even though I think you mentioned he would resist being called any kind of radical or political person. But opening a bar in Atlanta in 1971, I think, is a, a pretty political statement to make, even if he didn't think so. But um, I didn't know about the bar, but I'm not from here. You're not from here either. Um, So I guess my first question is, how did you learn about this bar? And once you did, did the wheels start Mm -hmm. turning? And did did you decide that I need to write about this and why?
2: Yes, I had started writing um, just generally about Cheshire Bridge Road because I thought it was going to be the first of like eight different essays. I was trying to tell a story of Atlanta after the day after Martin Luther King was shot because I don't think anybody's really done a story about how the city's grappled with the legacy of the civil rights era and what it's become and how it's lived up to that. So I thought, all right, there's eight major roads that lead out of downtown. Let's follow each one and see the stories. And Cheshire Bridge Road was interesting to me because I had lived there, but it's also one of the uh, one of the oldest places in sort of suburban Atlanta. You know, it was, I guess you could call it a suburb in the 1830s when it was uh, when the uh, when the Creek Indians had been removed and settlers moved in uh, the Cheshire family farm uh, was on either sides of the south of the creek um, there are lots of things there's so many interesting things going on on that street there was a the, uh, evangelical evangelical gay church uh, there's the colonnade there's all the adult movie st- bookstores and you know it's a little bit of everything it's always been that gutter between Buckhead and Emory that uh, you know my gutter so i feel okay calling it that uh (laughs) so I, i started writing a lot about it and it was just sprawling so i started to look at some of the pieces and the thing that always came back to me was this interview that lester west did for atlanta magazine and mentioned the club a couple of times and said that you know in its time it was the place to be so i started to look up what i could and things just started coming out of the woodwork and there were so many people who I'd known from nightclub life who were around then and said oh yeah that was uh, that was the place to go before backstreet that was the place to go before Blake's. any of those clubs so I knew that there was a story behind it especially because it was one of the first queer bars to be just out Uh, and Frank Powell did that because he felt like it was time he felt emboldened and he knew how to run a nightclub Especially a dragnet club, we thought better than anybody else.
1: Yeah, that's um, the funny thing about it is I think you've told the history of a bar in this book, but by doing that, you've done a whole lot more. You've told individual stories, and all that's kind of merged to become the story of a community and a city at a certain place in time, and maybe why certain things happened. Um, The narrative that you use to me is very striking. Um, You do a lot of small one or two page chapters that um, talk about different people involved during this time. Politicians, uh, drag queens, bartenders, and of course a couple of other people that play a significant role that I'll ask you about later. But obviously you studied narrative nonfiction, which I think is great. I love the genre of narrative nonfiction what made you decide that this choice of narrative is the best way to go with this book?
2: I think now that I'm studying more formal history I really see it because you can organize a book by theme, you can organize it by personalities, you can organize it in so many ways that break it up into uh, ideas but If you want to simulate real life, I I really feel like vignettes are the way to do it, um, because you need to be able to do that constant, slow building of time. And it makes it appear like it's going faster. But, you know, you're actually piecing it together, little scrap by little scrap. It's like quilting a story together. Mm -hmm. So I thought early on, I didn't have a grasp on it. So after about six rewrites, I finally read the book that I thought was going to show me how to do it. And it was um, Dan Baum and Margaret Knox's book about New Orleans during Katrina, Nine Lives. And it's also told in vignettes. So I exchanged some emails with them. Um, You know, sadly, Dan has passed since then. But uh, the emails that I traded were just, you know, how do you know how to extract the time out of a story and how to weave together all these elements? Because it really can get chaotic. And I wanted to include as many people as I could. You can't really tell a story about a nightclub and only focus on one or two people. It's not true to life. Uh, So, and and there was so much good material. There's so much that got left out too. Uh, But like Leslie Jordan, um, I wrote a chapter about him and my editor said, you've turned in 25,000 too many words and his story is not like essential to it. So I kept it. And then realized it's a perfect bitter southern a profile. And it, it really was I mean, he's just and he was just wonderful about doing the interview and just captivating and so kind to offer his support in every way that he did. Um, uh, but you know the the club was just filled with people like him, like Rachel Wells, like Bill Smith, who were at this point in their life where they're trying to find this new queer identity and trying to discover their adult identities too so it, it just it seemed to come together really quickly at, at that point and then then just polishing the last bits you know version 7 through 12 or how do I cut 25,000 words
1: <laughs> yeah I mean it, it is it, it's just like oral history except it's not oral per se yeah. but it does progress in that way and I think that's what makes it so interesting mm-hmm. to read about um, and there are a lot of characters in the books, um, in the book, but two main characters come through. You, you you've decided to tell their story a little more elaborately, and uh, as you mentioned, one was Bill Smith and um, John Greenwell, and they both came to Atlanta from smaller towns, from difficult childhoods where, you know, being gay was not good, and. So they sort of came here, like you said, to find their identity, really. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, Bill found his in activism, and I think Rachel or John morphed into Rachel and found hers in drag. And um, I think they needed a place where they could be, a place where they could live in that was safer for them. They never diverged really, or they never converged or met. I don't think we know if they met or not. But they do represent two very significant paths of that mm-hmm. time: drag and activism. Wait, yeah. did telling the story through them make it a better way to tell the story, or did it give you a better grasp on the the whole culture at large at the time?
2: Well, I, I think it, any book about culture in the 70s is about activism and about forming a group identity and a community Atlanta's always been known for drag too and how can you turn it down when you've got you know hot chocolate lighting pails of gasoline on fire and swinging bow constrictors around stage and chopping watermelon and throw it at people in the audience and it's just hysterical but yeah I think about uh, John playing Rachel and um, I think you discovered his ability to teach and to nurture people more than anything and we're friends and uh, I just had lunch with him last Thursday up in Kentucky and uh, it's just striking we just talked about his career after that teaching in Kentucky public schools and and teaching adult education and uh, you can see the beginnings of that and how he framed it and how it it was great fun and allowed him a lot of dates and a lot of drugs and anything he wanted to do and made him a really good living, but it wasn't enough for him. He knew he had another calling. Um, Bill Smith knew his other calling, but it wasn't possible for him to, uh, to have it in Atlanta, and that compounded emotional difficulties that he had, and he was not able to resolve all those. So the story of people searching for their identity is not always a happy one,
1: Yeah, their trajectories are quite different. Sometimes I found um, John Greenwell's story to be just plain old fun to read. It was a fun story. I enjoyed following it through the decade, and Bill's is not. And there's aspects of his life that are kind of lamentable. I mean, he was a great activist. He was involved in the Gay Liberation Front and but ultimately you know some demons took over and those demons are very recognizable by a lot of gay men i mean depression drug addiction uh multiple anonymous sex partners i mean why do you think some people get into that downfall and somebody like rachel it it didn't affect her in the same way
2: i don't know i think john would John would talk openly about, you know, he also used drugs and uh, was not always happy about it, um, but did it and it made him feel good in the moment. Um, there's that undeniable appeal um, in Bill's case. You know, I, I think I identify a lot with him and uh, it, it did make me sad to write a lot of these parts because he's you know, a little bit of an introvert in day to day life. But when he wants to be known for something, he's out there Um uh, and he was not willing to settle for less. And but he, but even his friends say that that might be true. Um, but at the same time, he had a great sense of humor. And he lived with drag queens who taught him a great sense of humor. And unfortunately, there's not enough of that. It's difficult for people to remember what he might have cracked a joke about 40, 50 years ago. So I, I do worry that, you know, his his life is represented as best I could, as best his friends could remember. But it's not his whole life. And neither is what's written about John. It's as much as I could recover. Right. The,
1: that kind of brings me to the research that you did. You, you did mm-hmm. research this very heavily but you also ran into some challenges. Um, yeah. You did have access to John Greenwell. he written a memoir he's still alive. You didn't have mm-hmm. access to Bill. I wonder what that speaks to the whole idea of preservation and saving our stories and saving our history, because it doesn't happen in this community a lot, or it didn't certainly back then. What does that say to you about that?
2: Even when people, uh, so uh, Tony Romano, the DJ from the Gumhead and from the Cove told me, we didn't realize we were making history. So it's hard to think of future-proofing for history to preserve these things, although John Greenwell did. And Bill wrote, thousands of column inches in the newspaper that he published. And there are a few items that were saved by Diane Hughes. So uh, there's, there's some, I, I really worry that with the information age that we won't have access to material like that, that Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts and Instagram feeds are per- You can preserve them, but who will give permission and will the tech companies allow them to be archived in a way to be useful and, you know, anybody can edit their archive when it's paper and going into an archive like Mayor Jackson. There's lots that's just not represented at all in his archives that I'm stunned is not there. Uh, but, you know, the, the people I interviewed and spent lots of time with, too, it's it's the same. We never think that we're writing for people living 100 years from now.
1: True. You, you're right. You don't know what you're doing is special or not special. Yeah. yeah. No. But it was one of the special aspects of this book, though, is you know, most of early gay history, especially regarding the movement, always seemed to come from San Francisco and New York City and always used to be told through the prism of white male gay men. And this is not that, and it's great. That it's not that i mean and that's changed over the years hasn't it i mean it's
2: it's, we're
1: talking for sure
2: lives than we used to Mm -hmm. right so this is back to the problem of archives and how you talk about history and how you talk about people of the past if you don't have that record now this is a lot of what i've read about history in the last few years is the subaltern how do you how do you get people whose lives would not have been documented and give them voice Uh, and it's a perennial problem for historians and I think that luckily in this case um, the people that I chose were kind of the celebrities in their community so there was a lot written about them there were a lot of profiles written about them so even though in the greater scheme they weren't showing up in the Atlanta Journal Constitution all the time although Bill Smith did uh, fairly often in the New York Times he did a couple of times Um, but within the community many people knew them and many people were friends with them or enemies or had some kind of a relationship that they would recall. So it's, it's a lot of shoe leather reporting. And that sounds funny because you know, who wears shoes with leather? I mean, I, you know, new balance sneakers, like new balance reporting, I guess I'll call it. Uh, he, it it's uh, it's so time intensive. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's any different, even as people have become, uh, have their had their lives more heavily documented because then you just have piles and piles of information to sort through and decide what's important. And uh, too, Atlanta, I think is an interesting example. We, like you said, it's not San Francisco and it's not New York, but several people I interviewed and other people I spoke with uh, just for context with the story, like you know, this really had to happen in a city like Atlanta, and it was the best case for it to happen here because. It couldn't just be a coastal revolution of LGBT elites. There had to be some blocking and tackling for the people who were confronted by religious issues on a daily basis. And I think that was best said when Anita Bryant came to town in 1978, and that was the that was the precursor to decades of conflict between progressivism and conservatism.
1: Yeah, definitely, and you know. <sighs> When I grew up in Oklahoma and I went to bars when I was younger, they, they all had some element of drag to them. It was either the drag queen was the bartender or she was uh, checking coats or, but everyone, every bar had a drag queen or a drag performer and moved to New York. And I didn't see it that much. It was, um, it was less essential it seemed like, or less relevant to people that lived there. And so I'm, I'm wondering is, I think drag is definitely this, but do you think this story is uh, a particularly Southern story? And I think you kind of just touched on that anyway.
2: Yes, I, I think that what makes it Southern is sort of this search for redemption. Uh, to me, that's the thread that runs through a lot of writing about the South, that it's, uh, it does have this spiritual or illusory religious quality to it. Um, uh, it, it's I, I, I still cannot explain adequately why drag is such a thing, and it, it wasn't just in Atlanta. Of course, Miami and New Orleans and Chicago. A lot of the performers from Sweet Gumhead <laughs> came from Chicago, um, so it was prevalent. But Atlanta was one of the places at the time when it became possible to have a drag bar that started to field performers from other states and other town other other bars and bring them to Atlanta to perform so really quickly the identity of a, a place for top flight drag had had pulled together and people knew that they could work here and they knew if they did work in Atlanta especially at the Sweet Gumhead that they would made it
1: yeah definitely um now when you talk about drag and I love drag I've loved it all my life but um and I know some people's framed this book as a book about activists and non-activists. You know, drag is activism. And, and I think you make a point of, of saying that throughout this whole book. I mean, if you're in drag, you're provoking, you're rebelling. This is not. Absolutely. A, I mean, the drag queens I saw in Oklahoma, they were fearless, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, they don't don't take their picture for Gay Pride Day because we're not really like that. And uh, mm-hmm. God, Uh, I mean, Stonewall was drag and transgender people rebelling. And it's just funny that now I think maybe it was hot chocolate or somebody in the book says, you know, they love us when we entertain them and uh, they love us to be funny and they tip us, but out on the street, they're embarrassed by us. Yeah.
2: Yeah. LaVita Allen, who really grew to be um, not just ambivalent about how her drag career had gone, but just disappointed like fundamentally disappointed because apparently a very talented performer and was able to act very well even in non-drag roles or in plays that capitalized on her fame as a drag queen um i to me it became very clear by the time i finished writing that john didn't realize it but his drag was activism he always pictured that people like gil robinson and bill smith who were out protesting and could do it when John would roll in from work at four or five in the morning and couldn't get up until you know like three in the afternoon start all over again it was working six nights a week doing that Um, but I, I it came across to me while I was talking to somebody else before I got through the first edit of the book too I was like well wait a minute if that's true then Bill Smith's activism was his form of drag he literally put on the clothes to look like an activist to or to be in the first uh, Pride March that happened on sidewalks in downtown Atlanta, he literally put on the drag of a city official so that he would fit into Mayor Jackson's CRC. Um, and it, uh, <laughs> I've been reading a lot about this this semester about you know performance and gender and roles and you know how how they're constructed carefully and in both cases it was pinpoint attention to detail to make the framework for them to fill their lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, performing to them was an intimate act. It was an act of politics, but it was an intimate, even from how they chose their music. It was a very intimate process. They wanted song mm-hmm. that really spoke to who they were and uh, and music has an incredible role in this book, too. You evoke so many memories with so many great songs. Um, and I guess when I'm thinking about drag and disco, uh, which plays a big role, um, I think those are often really ridiculed mm-hmm. aspects of the gay community, and you give it uh, a credibility, a radical credibility and a reverence that I don't see a lot of historians doing and and i I appreciate that. I mean, it what role do you think music played not only there at the Sweet Gum, but mm-hmm. in our community then and now?
2: But it was a voice that queer bars and queer people seized on, um, because it was about joy and life. And it was something that they were reaching for instead of confirming that they already had. And even in most of the most popular disco songs, the lyrics don't often come across like the song itself. Um, you know, there's real turmoil or angst or just you know soulful description of what a life is really like, and luckily there's actually this whole subgenre of books about disco that make those points for me. Um, you know, it's something that I always felt, but here it is laid out academically by a few. Uh, there's one book called "Love Will Save the Day," um, and I, I'm blanking on the others, but I do have one of them here. Just disco. It's a big it. it, it takes hundreds of songs and talks about the the performers and um tries to put them in context uh, but the people who put them in context the best were for me were Gloria Gaynor and Niall Rogers when they're commenting on Disco Demolition Night um, they were very clear about seeing exactly what was going on and why people were blowing up disco records and Gloria Gaynor was you know she thought this is just a uh, money making and and uh people trying to play a political point to uh, damage disco artists. Mm-hmm. Niall Rogers said it was a Nazi book burning, no buts about it. And I think history has kind of proved him right because disco music had to kind of submerge itself into dance music. And it did ironically become more sexualized and more overtly queer as a result, but the audience diminished. And it's a, it's a key point. It's something I'm reading about more now. Um, you know, somebody like Sylvester had a massive hit in 78 and then is recording again in the early 80s and uh, is having to face, you know, the, the, the fact that the audience is going to be smaller because disco's heyday is over and people are turning to other genres.
1: There is a rebirth or revival of the idea that disco was a good thing. I mean, disco was big in the Black communities and the lgbt communities and that's why the the burning of those albums at i think it was ohio or somewhere i mean that was probably chicago yeah oh okay way more problematic than just burning art it, it was saying <sighs> something about what mm-hmm. was to people
2: yeah people don't riot and explode things and race field of a pro sports event and do the things that they did if they don't feel strongly about it and if it doesn't carry a message no matter how nuanced that message might be um, but people realize wait a minute this isn't a disco record this is a soul record why is this included Mm -hmm. oh i know yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs)
1: um although the music was important to your book and it demanded a Spotify playlist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one I play every night when I drive home. Um, you want to talk about that
2: a little bit? Uh, oh yeah, I, I could add a couple more and I actually have added a couple more to my own personal list because I completely forgot Candy Staten, uh, Young Hearts uh, and the story that I'm telling now and I'm trying to figure out how to work it into this next book is Niall Rogers went on TikTok like just as I was finishing edits for the book and he talked about Diana Ross and and he went out to a nightclub and he saw some drag queens so he wrote a song called I'm Coming Out gave it to Diana Ross helped you know he was the songwriter engineer recorder bassist all those things for that album of hers in 1980 Uh, she didn't realize the double meaning of it so she recorded it and then somebody told her so then she's like why are you trying to ruin my career by giving me a song that's for gay people something to that effect um, and I thought it was the most revealing moment, and I really wish I'd heard about it before then, but that song is a staple of pride now, so it's, you know, you can bring it in at any point, it's just that, that, that uh, knowledge that even somebody who is a superstar, Diana Ross, could get away with whatever she wanted, yeah. and she was even conscious that being labeled a gay performer was a form of career death.
1: True, um, I'm pretty t- startled that she didn't know the uh, the meaning of that song but you know, how <laughs> I,
2: how but I, there, there was
1: no one around her that could even <laughs> remote well
2: <laughs> well apparently and and at the end of the day one of her biggest career hits there's even wow. better there's even better backstory to that apparently rogers turned in the produced album and she didn't like it she thought some things need to be toned down and some things amped up so they went and remixed it she re-recorded all of her vocals and you can hear the different versions on the uh bonus track versions that are out now and she was right she, <laughs> she was absolutely right her performance on the re-records is brilliant
1: well I mean, it, it was a big hit, but, and even more important, it became an anthem, which is pretty hard to do
2: yeah. with music.
1: <laughs> and, it was an anthem. Yeah, and it still is. I mean, I hear that song, and I, first I think about me in my 20s, but then I think about, God, this song is going to go on and, <laughs> on and on and on. It's going to have meaning to every subsequent generation.
2: Uh, I think about somebody giving me that album when I was 9, 10 years old. I think it was that year. I'm like, what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> still have that album somewhere, yeah.
1: Um, one of the, probably the only politician that plays a large role in this book is Maynard Jackson. He mm-hmm. was uh, the first black mayor of Atlanta and first black mayor of any city in the South. And yeah. in 73, I think he was elected. He was a bit of a liberal at the time, to- of the time. Um he was considered an ally to the community by some people. I do think he gave a lot more support to our community than anybody else had. Um, but it also seemed like he was very image conscious. And mm-hmm. he he wanted Atlanta to be seen as an international important city. Um, so I guess for that reason, he kind of backed off a little or became a little more reluctant to be so blatantly supportive. and. Mm-hmm. I think people started seeing, well, he's not supporting us in the way that he needs to, so how do you see his legacy in this context, in this time period?
2: Uh, I think it's complicated in terms of queer rights and representation, but ultimately, I think it's pretty favorable. Uh, his role in history, I just it, it's difficult to see a, a mayor who's come into a situation like this, and also being the first black mayor, was able to get so much done, so much Literally laid the tracks for modern Atlanta with the airport and MARTA. His his commitment to gay rights and his willingness to voice it are, are beyond question. I mean, he wrote a letter to the Advocate saying, "I am for gay civil rights." How many? At the time, I don't know what the, exactly what the perception of the advocate would have been, because to us, it's a newspaper. To anybody else, it must have just been a porn rag, because you know, they did have ads with naked people in them. Um, so he was willing to put himself out to lend his name to the effort. But in 77, um, when he got blowback from people who had helped him get into office, and who may have had some role in trying to convince him that he might want to take a run for u.s senate uh, that he should probably dial that back a little bit so he found a political way to still issue support but not make it specifically a gay pride announcement Um, what i found was really interesting was that he actually signed the first gay pride day proclamation on the Neil boards show and uh number one i'd forgotten Neil Bortz was on the radio way back in 1976 but um but that that would have been s- that contentious with them because I thought thing was he's libertarian you know let right. him, uh, live. that's it's not a very libertarian position when you're telling people not to do what they want to do <laughs> so you know Jackson i think the the biggest thing you have to look at with him that's con- that's relevant right now is that he ran for a third non consecutive term and would say later on that that was just a mistake that he never should have done it so i wonder if uh, Kasim Reed might feel the same way if he wins in a few weeks. That mm-hmm. you know you can't really go back to the well again and, and do the same things that you did before. Um, I hope um, I hope the best for the city. Uh, I just there's just not a historical precedent for uh, what we're facing right now. Although Jackson did face a lot of crime, and of course the Atlanta child murders during his second term, um, I, I think his response was all oh, you could do. Um, offering reward monies and devoting a lot of police force to it because it was a singular thing. Right now, we just have this diffuse uh, rise in crime across the city and across the nation, and it's much more difficult to tackle. I think so. Uh, you know, I don't have any wisdom on any of that. It's just it looks similar on the surface, but quite different underneath.
1: Well, that's true. And but one of the things I thought that sort of came out of Jackson's tenure, uh, not directly from him though was, and you talk about this a lot, uh, the need for a commons area and a mm-hmm. place for gathering, um, and you talk about that being anywhere from the Sweet Gumhead to other bars to Cheshire Bridge Road and to Piedmont Park. Um, talk about the importance of that, how it's important for a community like ours to kind of have that chance to go and live our lives with other people in a common
2: area. I think we take it for granted now because it's so accessible to us and because we've even got so jaded by it that, you know, it's available on smartphones and tablets and computers and Instagram and all everything else that, uh, you know, just having a specific place to meet other queer people in public, if you felt so inclined, was just a major victory. In the 50s and 60s in Atlanta, you would go to bars that would kind of turn gay at, at night like Mrs. P's. Uh, or you could be in a place that was being patrolled and you could only make the subtlest physical indications that you were interested or you could cruise the park after dark and run the risk of being arrested and um, it was just so much more of a of a hunting grounds for queer people who are trying to take take advantage of being in a city with thousands of other queer people Um, you know that changed very quickly and so many gay clubs opened in atlanta in the mid 70s i think it went bill smith said it went from five or six to 23 24 it sprinkled in a few different hubs uh and that's an an amazing development for a city that was just barely a million people
1: yeah definitely um, and it talks to the importance of gay bars to to us i mean gay bars are fun and you dance and you drink and flirt but Mm -hmm. It's also a gathering place to see see where you are in this world. I mean, yeah. my partner was in graduate school in Atlanta in the 70s, and he went to the Sweet Gumhead. He was in the closet, and he bumped into one of his graduate school professors there, who was also in the closet. <laughs> they made a connection, and I think it's because they needed to go out and find people like themselves and find a place where they felt safer and Mm -hmm. that's what makes gay bars i think more more important to our movement and our culture than a lot of people give them credit for
2: um yeah you think about going into your first bar when you get legal and having a first drink it's kind of a community celebration and it's a, a passing into a different age you do it as a gay person opening a a queer bar door for the first time. And it's a sense of relief. It's a very different yeah. takeaway from it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, my partner did tell me, I mean, he read this book. He was giddy with recognition to this whole book. I mean, he kept saying, I, I, I know her, I went there, you know, you just smiled from the beginning and then forgetting this book and great. Talked to me about a particular night there. Um, I think it was a pageant of some kind. And a quote, six foot two beauty came on the stage, and
2: um, maybe John who's six was, four. <laughs> With a talent portion. enormous.
1: <laughs> Accompanied by music, he created a mini mobile home. That of was course. His, and it that's great to me. I mean, that says you're not gonna find that everywhere. That's too good. And
2: and they cultivated that at the sweet gum head because they knew they would never be the biggest disco because the room could only hold like about 300 people. It was nothing like backstreet. And, uh, you know, they weren't going to spend a million bucks to polish it up like the limelight. There weren't going to be sharks swimming under the dance floor. None of that. Uh, there was one mirror ball. And then later on, they added a second one. Um, and that was as much as they wanted to spend in the building itself. Uh, but in terms of the performances and hiring the right people to come and do them, I mean, they had help all along the way from everybody who performed and John Austin, who managed the club, who was a theater major. And, you know, he ended up decorating sets and doing it for not just the club, but also the Miss Gay America pageants for several years.
1: I wanted to end on something. You've chosen to begin and end this book in a very poignant way. You know, the book starts just after Stonewall, where the movement is starting to coalesce and get strong gay liberation front and it you take us through the 70s as we move ahead and move forward and then the book ends and i'm not giving anything away but the the book ends in 1981 with the looming AIDS crisis and the devastation that we all know followed from that did you know you were going to bracket it that way when you first started writing did that evolve out of the writing or
2: One of the first things that I I researched was, you know, just where is it? What does it look like? How long was it open? So the club opened, uh, the 50th anniversary is next month. Uh, It's November Mm -hmm. the 15th, 1971. And it closed on August 30th, 1981. And there was a a button that people were given. And uh, somebody that I knew from the community had posted a picture of the button that they had in their personal collection. So... I knew right away, I'm like, wait a minute. So the first story about AIDS or rare gay cancer was in the New York Times, July 4th of 1981. So then I went, started looking through the Atlanta History Center archives and the gay newspaper at the time, the Gazette had planned. They wrote a story when they found out the club was closing. They said, come back next week. We're gonna have wall-to-wall coverage of the Sweet Gumhead's 10 year reign, um, almost 10 years. So the next issue, uh, they pulled all that coverage. And instead they are writing a story about Kaposi sarcoma and, you know, how you should handle these medical situations and where other people are reporting it. And you can see the beginnings of the epidemic, not just in Atlanta, but around the country, because the CDC at that point had already found or tracked down hundred, more than a hundred people who had Kaposi's and pneumocystis pneumonia. So the uh, overlap between the two is just uh, it's eerie at first. I thought that summer of 1981, um, I've long wanted to write a story about that summer too, what it must have been like the last real time. Uh, because so many people remember that as you know, the, the end of an era and the end of many of their friends' lives. So there was never a doubt that I was going to end the story there. And one of the mentors of the MFA program had been to the club a lot. And she wrote a story on the AIDS vaccine trials and had a lot of memories at the time and a lot of people passed. And um, another mentor had lost 13 friends in Atlanta to AIDS. So I, I wanted to hint that, uh, you know, this is this is the storm coming. And uh, in the next book that I'm writing, it's it's gotta be, it's going to be far more explicit because people are dying in the thousands. Right.
1: Well, that's uh, one thing I thought, I mean, the scourge of AIDS, wiped out a generation of stories and lives and we'll never get them back and it and some people even thought it set us back Um, and the other terrible thing AIDS does is i think it kind of overshadows the achievements of the 70s you know Mm -hmm. there are there are young people now who think being gay is about AIDS. you know it's all the things that we did or they did in the 70s that gave us power gave us uh uh, put us on the road to civil rights and even ultimately got us to where we are today you know it it, it, when it runs into aids it kind of gets lost and and i i regret that i i because i think this tenacity and resilience we showed during aids when we came together as a community and helped each other i think that came from our evolution in the 70s it made us work with each other more
2: it certainly does and i didn't want us to regret it and so many of the books that have come out you know there's the classic three parter of randy Schultz and david france and sarah Schulman writing about the aids epidemic itself and it's uh you can just feel the panic building in their pages and i felt like we deserved to know about a time when it wasn't panic when it was about this moment of discovery and happiness and joy and even mitigating that with you know the difficulties that people were going through just becoming people not having to deal with an epidemic um, it was challenging enough and then it became a literal fight for the lives of of friends and, and lovers
1: yeah it did but i am glad that you i am glad that's what this book looks at is the the hope and the optimism of a time when Drag and disco and LGBT sexuality was being talked about and going forward. Why Atlanta? Why do you think this revolution occurred here? Just a fortuitous gathering of the right people? Or was there something about this city at this time that facilitated it?
2: We talked a little bit before about you know, Atlanta always having this drag culture and also being a place, you know, in the South. The queer revolution had to happen some point in the South. And when you were talking a little bit about the '70s as this, this decade of putting together the queer community, I do wonder what would have happened if, if AIDS had not happened. Would we be more assimilationist and, you know, still be working toward gay marriage, or would it have come much more quickly? Um, so Atlanta. Just being my hometown and just discovering all this was one reason to write about it and then realizing that you know this this other phenomenon of how the gay revolution kind of rolled out across the country and then realizing more than San Francisco and New York there's this potent religious tussle along with it that um, you know Bill Smith had troubles with intimately his parents were very very religious and very observant and that became one of the things that drove him away from that Um, And Anita Bryant coming to town and trying to capitalize on a moment for public relations. You know, the the struggle between uh, queer life and religion, you wouldn't really get it in San Francisco or New York. Um, How our culture, the the way the cultural divide took shape, started to take shape here. I firmly believe that.
1: And you've merged that struggle beautifully with the only playlist I've ever heard that has Gloria Gaynor and Anita Bryant on it. Thank you. Yeah.
2: And and that Anita Bryant song is is, and the one before it. um, (laughs) Challenging.
1: Yeah. I've never heard about the disco albums being burned. Can you please Mm. expand on that a little?
2: Sure. There was a DJ in Chicago who developed a distaste for disco music and had switched stations and was friends with uh, the ownership of the Chicago White Sox. So they decided that they were going to do an event where they would blow up some disco records on the uh, on the field of Comiskey Park um, during a doubleheader uh, with the Detroit Tigers. And it was I think it was July twelfth, July fourteenth, nineteen seventy nine, two days before Bill Smith was arrested the first time. So um, the uh, the event started to happen. Um, but they had sold so many tickets that people just started to get through the gates of the park and records started flying onto the field long before they were going to have the explosion and players were worried about getting hit by them. And they already knew it was out of, out of control. When they finally blew them up, all these people moved down from the stands and were rioting and they had to cancel the second game of the doubleheader. header. Um, so it's called disco demolition night. And it is one of those cultural uh markers of of queer life that now I think you know we realize more and more that that was that was the sign of difficulty to come trying to integrate you know it wasn't all just hey all the straight people are coming to queer clubs and they're loving our music and they love the drag performances and we're all cool we were definitely not cool
1: <laughs> you're right and i, I know a, a couple of people who've told me they remember this was just a bunch of young white metal rock guys that resented anything that wasn't like their music and so that's that's where it kind of got started i'm surprised mm-hmm. it ever happened to rap music as much as little as this country learns from things like that I,
2: well, and the dj has gone you know a few times and spoken with people doing stories about it and said no that's not the intent that's not how it felt but i don't know if you get that from the person who initiated it you get it from the people who realized their records were being burned and exactly. and it wasn't a disco record or even if it was why are you, why my genre of music why not country music and the You're answer right. seems to be pretty clear it's because it was brown people black people and queer people exactly
1: are you currently working on a new book
2: yes um Actually, you just uh, settled my, my same publisher, W.W. Norton, is going to publish my book uh, probably a couple years from now. It's Atlanta in the 1980s, and it's the story of Michael Hardwick, who was a bartender at the Cove in Atlanta and was arrested for sodomy and took his challenge to the Supreme Court, where he lost. And he died of AIDS in 1991 in Gainesville, Florida. And his story is uh, he often gets reduced to what his court case was, and uh, this is the time to make him a real person again and show people who he was and how tough he was. That's
1: great. I'm glad to hear that you're doing that. I was in New York in '86 when the, the decision came down. The day before that, there was a rally and we lawyer gay lawyers were saying this will never happen. Don't worry, they're not right. Do it. And it happened, and it, it really did. galvanized new york and probably the rest of the country I and mean, that's when yeah. talk started about uh, a national march on washington and things proceeded.
2: yeah and they did have one the next year just like after harvey milk was assassinated then there was a march the next year in sort of his honor and then after the hardwick verdict there was a march the next year and hardwick was one of the 600 people arrested in dc for protesting
1: good for him yeah.
2: yeah
1: a true lgbt hero i think I just have to say to you, personally, this book is wonderful. I hope people who have any interest in Atlanta or history or queer life will pick it up, pay for it, pick it up. And um, this book has been really meaningful to me and a lot of people I know who lived here for a long time. And so from them, I just want to say thank you for writing it and uh, thank you for being with us tonight.
2: Thank you. Our city has a lot to offer history. So you know, trying to trying to do as much as I can.
1: <laughs> we appreciate the effort. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from the Gwinnett County Public Library. Thank you again to Martin Padgett and Mark Woodard for the great conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting your Gwinnett County Public Library.